Good morning, Jundo. How are you today? Really good, but we got something we want to tell new listeners. Okay, go ahead. What is it? We don't like this podcast until about episode six. I mean, no, no, I, we like it, but you got to get to know us first. And then, so go listen from episode six to the end. And then when you know us and love us, and you will love us, come back to the beginning. Okay, great idea. Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Welcome back to another episode of Zen of Everything. Nice to see you again, Jundo. It is always good to see you, Kurt. I have a very important question to begin this episode of the podcast. They're all important, but go ahead. Should a Zen teacher be comfortable with modern technology? You have to be, because this is the way we communicate. And the most important thing, if you're a Zen teacher, is to communicate. In the old days, the Buddha did not have writing. So all he could do was walk and speak, and his monks memorized. Then they had the printing press. Then, eventually, we had television, and we had the telephone, and now we have the Internet. Yes, you must be conversant. And that's coming from a guy who has an online sangha, so <laughs> I'm a little biased about that. Yes, and of course, you know why I asked the question. We spent a half an hour trying to get this session working. Um, you're actually you're, using you're two different computers. To, you're not <laughs> supposed to tell people about that part. This is some of the backstory. How, about... the, how the, the big Zen teacher was getting all flustered with his computer. Yes, the big Zen teacher with the online sangha. But you were just telling me that uh, you did a four-hour Zazen Kai and you used a new service and it worked fine. Um, it's just that you, you're, you have to get used to the process that we do to record these podcasts. Actually, we do this in an interesting way. We use Skype so we can see each other because I find when I do podcasts that you need that human interaction. Uh, you need to see when someone's speaking so you know when they're going to pause. You need to be able to raise your hand when you want to jump in. And there's a special meditation that's only appropriate for when Skype is downloading, you know, as it, <laughs> as it goes, so you, you just, you just focus on the, the little numbers gradually yes. approaching a hundred and you go deeper and deeper into Samadhi. Th this comes from the progress bar sutra, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Okay. Um, we have quite a few questions from our listeners and I'm not going to take them in the order that we discussed. I'm just going to pick them at random. Surprise me. I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to start with a question that you raised on the Tree Leaf Forum. Is Shikantaza meditation? Oh, well, as many of my answers here, yes, but no, not at all. The reason is that, of course, we sit uh, in a certain posture, traditionally the cross legs, and we face the wall, and we may uh, either center on the breath or just what we call open awareness, and we don't grab thoughts, and we sit in equanimity. So yes, it's 
meditation in that way. But there's something special about shikantaza that makes it not meditation. Ask me what that is, Kurt. What is it that's special about shikantaza that makes it not meditation? I'm glad you asked me. <laughs> it is that you sit with radically nothing to attain except sitting as the one act to do, the one place to be in all the world. Usually, human beings these days, we do things in order to get something. I use Skype because I want to communicate. Or I drink even a glass of water because I'm thirsty. I want to get something. Shikantaza is different. When we sit, sitting is the sitting of sitting. I like to say, sitting is the Buddha's sitting to sit like a Buddha. It's very strange, but when you, you sit shikantaza, it's a complete and whole experience with nothing looked for besides the sitting. For those who don't know the word shikantaza, can you just explain that briefly? Shikantaza is zazen, uh, which we usually say zen meditation, but the whole point of the question is it's not meditation. And shikantaza is the style in Soto Zen the style of Master Dogen, which is called, sometimes in English, just sitting. And it doesn't mean sitting like a bump on a log. We sit there energetically, and we sit there awake, but there is no objective but sitting. And it doesn't mean just sitting in the sense of correct sitting or righteous sitting. It means you're just sitting, you're not doing anything else. Well, you know, a lot of the Japanese... Zen people obsess about the posture, and I'm actually against that. I say find a comfortable, balanced, stable way to sit, and then forget about it, as they say in New Jersey. <laughs> you know? Well, your teacher, Guru Nishijima, had an interesting idea about that, didn't he? Actually, he was a Japanese Zen teacher, a 90 year old man, rather traditional, and he thought. Posture is vital to sit in the cross leg. And a lot of people said, you know, Roshi, these days I have health conditions. I need to sit in a chair. I need to sit in a different way. He didn't like it. He thought there was something very, very important about the cross-legged position. And this is debated by many people. But I have to say, I am a kind of modernist on this. I think the reason to sit in a posture is to sit in a posture, which means find some place where your body is comfortable and stable, and you can sit that way for however long you're sitting, and it doesn't work any particular magic beyond that. Okay, a practical question. Yeah. How do you get grape juice out of a carpet? You know, uh, I think it's impossible. Maybe... Uh, so once the grape juice is in the carpet, it has become one with the carpet, and you can just never get rid of it. I have a better carpet story. Okay. And... Uh, this was in one of the magazines a long time ago, I think Tricycle or something like that. And it was about a Tibetan Lama who went to visit his student in California somewhere, uh, very wealthy, maybe Hollywood type. And uh, they're sitting in the living room. The Lama is cross-legged. Oh, there they are, cross-legged again on the couch. And uh, the student is saying, you know, I'm beyond all material things. And the money does not mean anything to me. In the meantime, they're sitting in his palatial Hollywood mansion. So the Roshi proceeds to pick up the coffee or the grape juice and spills it on the expensive carpet 
and the man is, what are you doing? <laughs> and the Lama said, didn't you just tell me that you're beyond all material things? All I can say is if you get grape juice in your carpet, if you can get it out, get it out. And if you can't, you must accept that you have a grape stain in your carpet. <laughs> that that kind of reminds me slightly about when um, Tibetans make those sand mandalas. Oh, yes. Um, once I was in a museum in Nice, France, maybe about 15 years ago, and we saw a group of llamas doing this. And it's fascinating. It's very, very precise and delicate. And they make this wonderful mandala, and they look at it for a while. They chant. They yes, burn a little bit of incense, and then they just wipe it away, and they kick it. And I just find that wonderful. Well, there's it's a, a wonderful reminder of the impermanence of everything. There's a wonderful story about that, too, that I thought was uh, just a, a rumor for a long time. But it, I saw there's a film of this. So the llamas were invited to a museum in the United States, and they made the San Mandela. And, Mandela, and as you describe. They place each grain of sand one by one for this intricate design. And just as they were about to finish for the big museum opening, a little child thought it was a playground, jumped in and started kicking his feet and ruined the mandala. The museum staff were beside themselves. And they said, oh, llamas, we are so sorry. Do you know what the llamas did? Ask me what the llamas did. What did the llamas do? They brushed away the sand, and again, they placed each grain one by one. I don't know if they finished on time for the opening, but... Because it takes a long time, yeah. They just began again, and that is a very Zen lesson. I remember seeing on YouTube a video from surveillance camera footage of a little kid running onto a sand mandala. If I can find it, I will put it in the show notes. It might have been the same incident, um, but I find that fascinating. Okay, a more serious question. One of our listeners wrote, I have Alzheimer's and I would like feedback from others with this disease. I know and don't know and am in a lot of confusion. I guess like anything, but it does seem to make a difference with a label. How can someone with Alzheimer's deal with Zen? How can you practice Zen with Alzheimer's, in particular when it gets very serious and you're not even remembering things? Well, you know, this is... Uh very different part of life from just having a, a grape stain in your carpet. We can joke about that, but I've had people with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia in my own family. My teacher, Nishijima, at the age of about 93, uh, suddenly became very confused in his last year. And it is a very difficult, painful experience for the individual and the family involved in this. I don't have a good answer, but I will say this. We accept that we're born as babies and we need to be taken care of. There's unfortunately in this culture the view that when we get old and we return to that state, that is somehow ugly while being a, a, a young child is beautiful, maybe because the child we think has hope, the life lies in front of them and they're cute. And the older person who returns to the state of needing to be taken care of, we say, is the end of life. There is an aspect to our practice where we have to get beyond that and just say, the end of life is the end of life, and the beginning of life is the beginning of life, and just really accept it as it is. 
But if someone has Alzheimer's, I don't think there is a good answer to this. The, the one thing I could say is, as best you can, you do need to accept that you're losing function, you're losing ability, and really, if you can, just go with the flow of it like any health issue. I have never experienced it myself, so I'm just talking, you know, out of school. Uh, I don't know. What about people who are caring for someone with Alzheimer's? Someone you may have lived with for decades or a parent, someone you love dearly, when all of a sudden, in, in many cases, people with Alzheimer's dementia, they can become very abusive and, and angry. Our practice is about patience and accepting life situations. Uh, it was true in the Buddha's day. Uh, it was true in Dogen's day that there were people to be nursed, even the monks in the monastery, they would get old, and the other monks would have to tend to them. We like to say, this is our monastery, this is our practice. You may not want this aspect of life right now, but accept it, be with it as best you can, including the fact that you're frustrated and sad, and even maybe angry about this sometimes. Don't expect to be a saint. Uh, nobody would choose this particularly, uh, that this is their life to have to be bound to the house and dealing with someone who maybe is losing recognition even of who they are. It's, it's not easy, but life sometimes is not easy. And if our Zen practice has any value, it's at those times when it's oh so hard. Well, let's change the tone a little bit um, okay. because... You are supposed to be someone who has answers to everything. I told you how to get a grape stain out of a rug. I said, just accept the grape stain. Well, we have many listeners who are writing in asking, and I'm just going to give a general question here rather than a specific one. They're asking if you can give them advice on their love lives. Oh, sure. But I got to tell you one thing. I, I, I usually handle the questions about things like time and space and the meaning of life. Answering questions about sex and, and, the, and relationships, that's the real mystery. I, I think that's why Buddhists were usually celibate. It's just easier. Well, isn't that a cop-out, though? Yes. And, I, like and... being, I like being married and with kids. Today I chanted uh, the metaverses for my wife to be free of anger towards me. Hmm. Okay, what did you do wrong this time, Jundo? Oh, there's always something. Yeah, I know. I, I've been married for 30 years, and I'd like to say, even though I'm the Zen guy, the patient one is my wife. Yes, okay. One listener wrote in and said, do you see Zen catching on and spreading more through the United States into places that are historically rooted in Judeo-Christian religions in the near future? Oh, yeah. It's already happening. It's really that mindfulness movement is part of this. Now, there are some criticisms to be made about mindfulness, that they leave out a lot of the very important Buddhist teachings and kind of what they're teaching is sometimes just a relaxation technique and it's, it's kind of Buddhism light or basically they took out all the good stuff and just gave people a very minimalist view of some meditation technique. But the basic values of Buddhism that we're talking about, going with the flow, accepting things, seeing beyond your thoughts of your mind, finding peace within. Boy, isn't that 
succeeding already in in penetrating the society in in places you you don't even think, even if they don't call it Buddhism. So I think what you're actually going to see is you're going to see uh, Christianity and Buddhism and uh, a little Zen and people who don't consider themselves religious, but they're just spiritual. It's all kind of coming together, but boy, the, the Zen and Buddhist values are right there. Well, I've seen some articles recently where people are suggesting that mindfulness is a sort of a Trojan horse to bring in Buddhist Shh. ideas that people may not... Oh, sorry. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> We're trying to sneak it in the public schools without... Shh. It's a bit strange that some religious people are so insecure in their religion that they feel threatened when someone with different ideas comes along. Well, there is a, a certain criticism to be made. If it's just teaching, for example, uh, greedy people to be happier in their greed... Yes. Or the fellow who's dumping uh, pollution in the river just to be accept himself that he's running a factory. Or the Pentagon is using it to train killer soldiers who are beyond, they, they can clear their mind of thoughts of fear and death. I have some reservations. You know, the, 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 there's the part of this about not doing harm and not being excessively greedy. And if that is let out of it, then uh some damage could be done so it shouldn't be just uh stripping out everything from buddhism and just teaching people how to sit relax and accept their life if their life is really pretty lousy uh they got to you know straighten up a little isn't that what happened with yoga though y yoga has yes. a deep philosophical foundation but it came to the West, and it is basically just an exercise, a way of stretching and relaxing. Yeah, that's not good. I mean, I, I, well, let me put it this way. I'm not saying yoga is a bad thing at all, except the fact that when I've gone to a couple of yoga classes here, the teacher ends up laughing at me because I just cannot <laughs> get seem to get in the poses without creating some kind of incident. She's actually had to run over a couple of times to untwist me. <laughs> uh, that's my only complaint about yoga. but. These are powerful, beautiful teachings about spirituality and connection with the universe and, and really transcending life and death. And if you leave that out and just water it down, yeah, maybe it's not completely good to do that. Hidden within that first question I asked a few minutes ago is something that I would like to raise. Yeah. Is Buddhism, and particularly Zen Buddhism, a religion? Oh, here we go. Yes! But no. Yes, I know. You've discussed this a lot on the Trilly Forum, and I thought this would be a good time to, to raise the question. My teacher, Nishijima, had a good answer to this, because he had a very wide definition of religion. Any belief you hold about your connection to the universe, reality, where you are, why you're here, and how you should live, is a religion. Even if you're an atheist, that's your belief about your connection to the universe, what the universe means, and how you should live. So even he would say atheism is a religion. So any philosophy you have is also a religion if it deals with that subject. So uh, it's questionable. Is it a religion? In that sense, yes. Is it a philosophy? Yes. It's also a school of psychology because the Buddha's main focus was our suffering inside, which is the friction we have between the ears about ourself in relationship to the world and how the world and the, the self 
always are bumping into each other. So it's a school of psychology, it's a philosophy, it is religion. You know, today we did our Zazen sitting and we light the incense and we chant something. So it looks very much like a, a mass. It's a, it's a ritual. But why are we doing that? Well, the incense uses the olfactory sense to let you know that this is kind of a special moment. And the chanting is a philosophical text. If you read it, but really, when you pour yourself into the rhythm of the chant, it frees the heart, just the, the hypnotic rhythm of the chanting. So there's a purpose to it as well. It's not strictly done to, in, to bring the gods into the room. It's also a psychological technique to soothe the heart. So, yes, it's a religion. It's a school of psychology. It's a philosophy. It's two mints in one. Absolutely. Who cares as long as it's, it's a good thing, what you call it. doesn't matter what you call it. Okay. Someone posted on the Treely Forum recently a video of a woman who feels no pain. Oh, yeah. And there's something in her genes that means she simply cannot feel pain. Now, this would be wonderful. I have back pain, and sometimes it hurts a lot. But the risk is that you put your hand on a hot stove and you don't feel that it's hot until you start burning. Excellent. Yeah. To feel pain, we were, we were evolved to feel pain to survive. The trouble with pain is, uh, of course, the body sometimes runs to excess with uh, people who have chronic pain, which is a very, very different thing. But this woman's story, it's not just pain. There's something about her genes they found. She has... I think a gene that's either missing or is, uh, they've identified the particular gene cluster. And it's not only the pain, she's also an incredibly relaxed, accepting woman. She says she doesn't get emotionally carried away. Uh, it's kind of like the, the Zen gene they've found. There is an aspect here that if they can figure this out, they may be able to help people with chronic pain by turning the pain off. And I think a lot of scientific research in the future, according to the book I am writing now called Zen of the Future, which is about the connection of science and technology and, and such things uh, with our Zen and Buddhist beliefs, in the future they will identify genes or parts of the brain that they will be able to better sh turn on and turn off. And a lot of the suffering and... Uh, Angry emotions, for example, that people feel, will be able to regulate them better. But this woman is very important. If they can identify what that gene is, maybe they can help many, many people with chronic pain. Okay, well, chronic pain is one thing, but what if they come up with, say, a shikantaza pill that instead of sitting to have the same experience, you can just take a pill and it basically chills you? It's important that. We sit anyway. So I support that. I believe in the future, yes, you will be able to tap into the brain. Some people have been experimenting with this for actually several decades. And you may be able to do something to the brain that you have that feeling, for example, of transcending the body, becoming one with the universe, that the stress uh, evaporates, that you feel the anger dissipate. Yes, I think we can do some things physiologically, but 
We would sit Zazen anyway. Ask me why, Kurt. Why would we still continue to sit Zazen? Because it's not meditation. We Ooh. sit Zazen because the purpose of Zazen is to sit because we're always trying to get something out of our technology. But Shikantaza is different. Shikantaza, Zazen, is sitting there celebrating the fact that we do not need anything more. So it's a little different. Well, you mentioned all this about being one with the universe and having these calm thoughts and everything. My Shikantaza isn't often like that. I've had some very interesting experiences, but most of my sitting, I was going to say meditation, most of my Zazen is about trying to turn off the monkey mind. It's not often like that, but it's sometimes like that. And that's the beauty of Shikantaza, because it's like the weather. Some days the weather is cloudy and stormy. Some days the sky is open, blue, boundless, unobstructed, free. Having both experiences in meditation, or, oop, I used the wrong word, in Shikantaza, is very important. If we're only looking to have the clear, open sky in which all our cares and worries and thoughts are gone, it's not very helpful when we come back to life. Getting lost in the storms of anger and sadness and depression, that's not good either. But having the experience of sometimes clouds come and then you see the sky. And then the sky comes and there's another cloud. Just don't get caught in the clouds and stir them up. And then you see the light shines through the clouds and illuminates. And suddenly you still have your problems in life. And you have your mortgage that has to be paid. And you have your grandfather who has Alzheimer's. And you have your grape juice in the rug. It's okay. The light shines through the grape juice. <laughs> and you accept your life. So uh, to have all these experiences in Zazen is important. But either don't go to extremes of trying to always be at peace or don't run away from the storms. Because we also say that even on the stormiest day, the clear sky is still there. You're just not seeing it right now. Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? I have no idea. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.